Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Powers in Play, our monthly program looking at the world with an added Middle Eastern perspective. And with us today are Dr. Retired Colonel Eran Lerman. Welcome. Reserve Brigadier General Doron Gavish. Welcome again. Former Ambassador and Deputy Foreign Minister Danny Ayalon. Welcome. Baruch Haba, as we say, and Reserve Colonel Ruven Ben Shalom. Thank you all. And our topic uh, today has to do with an interesting proposal which um, was uh, published recently by um, former uh, NATO Secretary General Anders for Rasmussen, along with the National Security Advisor of Ukraine, Andrei Yermak and probably with the blessing of uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. And it goes like that. Ukraine obviously wanted to join NATO and enjoy the umbrella of collective security of uh, Chapter 5. If it is attacked, everyone must come to its rescue. This was the very reason, or one of the very reasons, Vladimir Putin decided to invade the Ukraine and preempt this move. The question is, how can an alliance or certain countries give another nation, which feels besieged, such security guarantees on which it can depend, which it can trust, without being a formal collective alliance, such as NATO, and the twist here in the plot is that they all refer to the so-called Israeli model. And that, obviously, is a reference to Israel's um, long quest for uh, acceptance, whether it is in NATO. It's impossible, of course. Israel is not part of Europe or the North Atlantic or some other mechanism. And Israel has made do with... Um, what it tried to get first from France, then from the United States. There are voices in Israel against um, having such a defense uh, pact with Washington anyway, even if it was uh, possible um, on the other side. What's your view on such an Israeli model for the Ukraine? Iran, please. Well, first of all, I think the reason they call it the Israeli model is that uh, the former name they would have used is no longer relevant, which is the Swedish model. For many years, there was a Swedish model, and Israel actually aspired to more or less position itself in the Swedish model. But Sweden has opted for, uh, Finland has been accepted for membership. Sweden will now have to 
uh, arranged for the Americans to negotiate with Erdogan over Swedish membership, but, uh, but Swe what, Sweden is no Sweden? longer. So, but for many years, Sweden was a military power by its own right, one of the very few small countries that still produced fire, uh, fighter uh, planes. Fighter planes, for example, the Saab. But um, uh, not in exactly neutral. It was associated with NATO. It conducted common uh, joint exercises with NATO. It had a uh, uh, an, an intelligence infrastructure in common, but it was not opting for membership. And it was supposed to stay that way. For until, fear of alienating Russia. For fear, for fear of alienating Russia, of turning the Baltic into a, a battle zone. Uh, they, they basic and historically, because Sweden has been... Uh, uh, has held it up its uh, its neutrality for uh, for hundreds of years or the last hundred years for certainly two world wars and so on. So the Swedish model was actually um, would have been the relevant one for Ukraine, but uh, the Sweden has moved on and now uh, there's the Israeli model of a, a powerful country with a uh, very close relationship with NATO, with uh, representation in a very, uh, in head, at, at NATO headquarters, with regular, a whole range of regular uh, common activities, participation in not only in exercises, but in operational um, models such as uh, patrolling the Mediterranean and so on, um, but without the actual obligations of membership and without the Chapter 5 ultimate chapter five protection. Exactly. And that is, uh, and, and this goes not so much to Israeli-NATO relations, but to Israeli-American relations. And um, I, I keep saying that when Churchill said, give us the tools and we shall finish the work in this famous lisp, um, he didn't mean it. He didn't really didn't mean it. He very it's, it's give us the tools and you finish the work. And uh, together we shall finish the work. Uh, he, he really was hoping... The arsenal of democracy. Uh, not just... He was... He, he knew and he relied on that, that America will ultimately come into the war. He, he said as much in his famous speech, uh, we shall fight in the beach and so on. Until the new world comes to the aid of the new. Uh, the new world comes to the aid of the old. Uh, so uh, that, he, he didn't mean it. We mean it. We do not want to see American soldiers die in our defense. That is our business. What we need are the tools, tools not just in the uh, sense of weapons and weapon systems, but in the broader sense of technological cooperation, intelligence sharing, and all that goes with it. I, I, I almost problem. almost uh, believed uh, the slogan Iran used regarding we don't want Americans to shed blood for us until I remember that you are here and that uh, there is an air defense uh, protocol between the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, where you uh, have been the uh, Air Defense Chief, and the U.S. Um, uh, Department of Defense, where there are um, shipborne assets such mm -hmm. as THAAD uh, or Aegis um, coming from uh, uh, the Sixth Fleet mm -hmm. to help Israel and American sailors, airmen, Marines, soldiers, mm -hmm could be hurt in, in uh, such a conflict. Yeah, but, but I think that uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit different uh, because when, when we are saying or one is talking about 
and, and American blood, I think he's more looking at, uh, into the attack part of it, of us fighting together uh, in enemy zones and, and so on. It's a bit different when it comes to the defense part of it. You're right that uh, whoever is in Israel is uh, risking his life in a way, but it's not so, uh, I would say, um, uh, so, uh, so dangerous as if you've been in the attack. But, but it's, it's important to say that this is really something that we have here in Israel. Uh, we don't call it to help, we call it to enhance the defense capabilities of, uh, of Israel against mainly targets from Iraq. This is a strategic... Iran, uh, no. Iran, sorry. This is a strategic uh, relationship between Israel and the United States. We see it as part of our deterrence. Uh, but I really don't look at it at some at some something that uh, we are expecting an American blood uh, to be um, to be armed in a way here in, in Israel or damaged or, or whatever. Reuven, you have uh, a lot of uh, experience, including recent experience uh, with liaison. You you meet foreign uh, military officers, Americans, and others. Obviously, this is a decision for the civilian echelon but they will have to execute it. Um, what do you hear from them, from, from foreign military uh, officers regarding uh, such a, a cooperation, collaboration, interoperability? When you talk about the Israeli model, then I will echo what General Gavish said. Uh, we feel a lot of commitment, really personal, passionate commitment, true friendship, uh, when we talk about our partnership with the Americans and shared common values and all that, that's not just fancy rhetoric. It's, it's real. We feel that. We have friends that even when they retire and we retire, we stay friends for life. This is real. Um, yet a lot of our work is building the capability to turn it on if the decision is made. You can call it different terms, uh, term CSOP, which is combined standard operating procedures, interoperability, building all the mechanisms that if the leadership or the national command authorities decide to, if, to turn it on, then we'll know how to do it. Then we can plug and play. Yet there is no commitment. It's not like the chapter five of NATO, which means we entered something that now we're safe. Now, that's why I also don't think the Israeli model exactly is the solution for Ukraine, because the feeling is like, yeah. if only if they were in NATO, there wouldn't be a problem. Putin wouldn't dare, right? And it's almost like this catch-22, because if you say nothing and say, I want nothing to do with NATO, you're safe, because Putin isn't irritated. You aspire to join NATO, you irritated Putin, he attacks to preempt. So you can't be on the fence. If only we would wait two more minutes or 20 more years and join, then he wouldn't dare. Now, Israel, we're never in that situation. Although we are so closely aligned with the United States and feel safe and they're here to augment and to, what's the term you use? Enhance. Enhance and augment and all that. And we feel this strong bond and partnership. And I do feel that our joint capabilities will protect Israel. They will have to decide. A president could decide not to look at the Yom Kippur War. So we, and we still will have to defend ourselves. Even though we take to extreme that slogan, defend ourselves by ourselves with the assistance of the Americans. Uh, Danny, um an Israeli, uh, um, you are obviously aware of uh, Amos Iran, who used to work at the uh, Washington Embassy as the uh, congressional liaison, among other uh, duties, and was later the director general of uh, Yitzhak Rabin's uh, prime minister's office. Uh, recently recounted how when Golda Meir, as prime minister, visited uh, Washington, 
and Rabin was universally considered an excellent ambassador. Nevertheless, at one time, uh, she got angry at him and asked Amos Iran, who was her confidant, is he speaking for us or for the Americans? <laughs> um, now, you have been um, the ambassador to Washington. You have also uh, been the political advisor, policy advisor to prime ministers, try to play the part of your hosts, the <laughs> Americans. How would they look at the so-called Israeli model, which Europeans have up to now uh, come up with? We didn't uh, hear Americans already adopting it. Well, first of all, about uh, Rabin, I can understand uh, this is a uh, commonly a common accusation made at ambassadors that they localities they, right they represent the, the local they authorities married the, the natives right the host country and not the one that uh, sent them yeah it's uh, sometimes it's uh, it's confusing but um, I would say well the United States um, you know what let me start tongue in cheek but uh, quoting Napoleon who said that he rather fight a coalition than be a part of a coalition. He said it before Austerlitz, maybe after Waterloo, he would not have said it. But in the case of, of Israel, and I think this is also the difference between really relying on one superpower, be it France in, in the 50s and, uh, and, or the United States, or part of a coalition like NATO with Chapter 5, which much more cumbersome to get uh, uh, decisions. And even though it should be an, on, a, on a pilot, an automatic triggering, it's not the case. And we know that. So in, in case of Israel, I think that um, any um, international guarantees, you know, if you take it to the extreme, UN, UN guarantees, you know, after 56, Ben-Gurion said, you know, we are leaving the Sinai for international guarantees. We know what the, the worth was of international guarantees. No, that, that's, it's true, but it's more complicated. Right. Because at that time, the Secretary General, Utant, felt that uh, he has enough authority to act on his own. Later, the uh, Permanent Five took it from, right. from SecGens, right. and uh, only uh, they can authorize it. Perhaps we wouldn't have uh, been in the May 1967 <laughs> crisis uh, <laughs> yes. if this but, wasn't but the case. But still, Amir, I wouldn't want to put the uh, fate of uh, Israel under the, uh, you know, the decision of even the Permanent Five of the Security Council. Now, when it comes to, um, to Ukraine, for instance, I think in retrospect, the major um, mistake, fatal maybe even strategic mistake, was that they gave up their nuclear arsenal. And when they gave it up, it was for guarantees. We know exactly. that these guarantees did not work. Exactly. So at the end of the day, you know, whether you talk about the Swedish model or anywhere else, it is very, I think the Israeli model has proven itself, first of all, to, to build a formidable, you know, even redundancy in your uh, capacity to defend yourself. And of course, to rely on a superpower. So, so just, just um, not to set the record straight, perhaps uh, there are conflicting versions, but there is, one uh, version, one very authoritative version of events, uh, according to which the um, Ukrainians never had any nuclear weapons. There were the codes, maybe. They, 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 there were, of course, nuclear uh, weapons stationed, soil, right. stationed right. in the right. Ukraine, in Belarus, and in Kazakhstan. But nevertheless, it was only Russian forces uh, who were there. And without the Russian forces, um, these were useless metal objects. 
Um, but be it as it may, uh, a question for you, Iran, and you have been um, with the foreign ministry, the, uh, uh, mil- the directorate of military intelligence, and the national security staff. Right after 1967, when Prime Minister Levi Eshkol went to President Johnson to ask for similar help, be it military aid or guarantees, the uh, Johnson administration, uh, specifically Secretary of State Dean Rusk, asked him a very special, uh, very uh, simple question. Can you please define Israel for us? Are we asked to, to uh, protect Israel proper, that is, the Israel that we knew in the armistice lines between 1949 and 1967, or Israel plus the occupied territories? Because our answer would be different. Well, even then, uh, they didn't even recognize Israeli sovereignty in West Jerusalem. So uh, that that was not uh, a a possibility. NATO has a policy, I think, uh, in its statutes that it cannot uh, accept as full members countries which have territorial disputes. Therefore, uh, the whole uh, uh, Georgia and Ukraine question uh, was uh, moot. In 2008, there was talk, but bo- but <coughs> once the Russians uh, seized uh, uh, Abkhazia in Georgia and uh, off, and from Osset- Georgia. from and Ossetia from Georgia, so Georgia has a territorial dispute. It is technically barred from being a member of NATO. So <laughs> as long as Russia uh, keeps not only the eastern part Ukraine. of Ukraine but also these four Japanese islands, it cannot join NATO. Japan certainly has no intention of joining. No, no, Russia cannot. Russia can. But you know, this is policies. Policies change. (laughs) Policies policies require. The Ukrainian situation, they would behave differently. They would find exceptions. But policies in NATO have to have the support of all members in order to change, which is a very cumbersome process. And it's enough for the Russians to have a single Trojan horse. Let's, for the sake of the argument, call it uh, Hungary. Uh, that that the whole thing falls apart. Um, so the only and, and Kissinger pointed out that in order for NATO, for Ukraine to be actually offered Ukraine, uh, NATO membership, Ukraine would have to concede uh, some eastern period, eastern Europe. eastern the Donbas, which is in any case and Crimea, and Crimea, and Crimea, and that was his argument. And once there is no longer a territorial dispute, the Russians will consolidate their gain. And Ukraine will gain in the sense of, of its security. Uh, Israel uh, certainly will face a similar dilemma. And I think that's also a reason to use the term the uh, uh, Israeli model, a country with a territorial dispute that cannot be a member of NATO, but can come as close to NATO short of membership and will have the capacity to defend itself. There will be a commitment like uh, uh, let's say an American equivalent, uh, an equivalent of the American QME uh, commitment to Israel, qualitative, qualitative military edge, which basically uh, under law requires American administrations to ensure that Israel retains a, uh, the capacity to defeat a combination of enemies in terms of the quality of its fighting forces. Does it does it uh, include Iran? Um, a very good question. The working assumption is that it does. And, and define defeat. Please. And define, no, define uh, defend itself successfully. 
And then uh, the, the interesting question over the years has been whether Egypt, which is a friend and peace partner, uh, and Saudi. Should, should be counted. The Saudis were automatically in, as long as there's no peace. Nowadays, the question is, is the UAE uh, partner and friend uh, in that equation? It became a mechanism for the U.S. to compensate Israel for its massive arms sales to the Are you talking about Gulfies. quantity or quality? quality? Well, it's always quality, and the Americans have the, um, the, methodolo- the methodology of, of net assessment to basically say, you know, um, yeah, I'll, I'll put it figuratively, uh, um, for uh, what is the power ratio between one Merkava tank and four T-62s at the range of four kilometers from each other. And it's not four to one. It's one tank and four targets, because they cannot engage in that. From that uh, Especially with four Israelis in the tank. And there's four <laughs> Israelis, well-trained Israelis in the tank. And that's uh, the quality of manpower, the quality of the, the technology, and, and, and other tangible and non-tangible power force multipliers, so to say, um, all of these go into that equation. So a kind of Ukrainian QME, um, and, and the Ukrainians have shown themselves capable and willing to fight for their country. It is the, the whole assumption that they would fall apart and, or throw rice on the invading Russians, that's dead already. So, uh, and without a... It, it's really wheat in, in Ukraine, not rice. <laughs> Grains. Grains. Not much left of that either. Uh, so, so let, let but me... But you see what I mean? Uh, okay. uh, essentially, not, not a chapter five, but a couple of elements short of that, which will ensure their capacity to defend themselves. So, Reuven, Ukraine is in Europe. There's no denying it. Um, can't be moved from UCOM to, to any other... Uh, command under the um, American Unified Command uh, Plan. Did you feel any difference once Israel was proclaimed um, some two and a half years ago that it is no longer under the uh, auspices of UCOM, but rather of Central Command, CENTCOM? There was a huge difference, but I wouldn't learn from that about Ukraine. The difference for us was that we... We're working with the European Command, which is responsible for Europe, where most of our adversaries and our battlegrounds are in the Middle East. That perhaps, under- perhaps one should spell Yukum with a K, U- Ukrainian Command. <laughs> so CENTCOM, Central Command, was responsible, is responsible for the Middle East. So all our rivals, and today, by the way, many of our Some, regional partners exactly. are under CENTCOM. So it was really a strange configuration. By the way, UCOM did a very good job, really very good job, understood their role, again, promoted it passionately, but it was strange. So dealing even with Lebanon during the Second Lebanon War, for instance, it was UCOM coming and working in a region uh, and collaborating with CENTCOM. By the way, back in my time, CENTCOM representatives were here, just I couldn't say that they're from CENTCOM. Now we say that they're from CENTCOM, so it is different. And the entire, I would say, the nature of the collaboration now is operationally oriented. So, of course, it's more streamlined, it's more focused. Terminology change, buzzwords change, but no, it's more of a, of a, a culture of really working the problems on the ground together and because of our regional partner now, now and peace partners. So, of course, it's a huge asset. I would not learn from that about UCOM. UCOM is an excellent uh, command. They know how to do these kind of collaborations. They do it all over Europe, and here they, I think, would do a great job. Um, 
Doron, uh, does geography matter? Because obviously uh, Ukraine um, has its Black Sea ports and, and uh, flotilla, whatever uh, remains of it. And uh, one, including the Russians, one goes through the Black Sea and uh, through the uh, Turkish uh, Straits into the Mediterranean. By the same token, when we had a few months ago um, an exercise with the uh, U.S. armed forces, some of the CENTCOM assets came up through the Suez Canal, and the exercise itself uh, was largely conducted in the Mediterranean. Does it matter, or is it in an artificial division of lines between various headquarters? No, it, it matters, and I would like to, to echo what was just uh, mentioned by, by Reuven. Uh, for us, CENTCOM is really the region that we are fighting in. We are here in the Mediterranean, so this is our geography. Those are the relevant countries. This is the relevant region. So it, it, does, it does mean a lot, a lot from, from this uh, perspective. We see it once we are now operating with, uh, with the CENCOM. You know, it, it is really amazing to see the, the, the commitment. It's uh, impressive to see the, I would say, the military approach of uh, CENCOM because you know, CENCOM and UCOM are a bit different. UCOM is more in a peaceful environment, uh, command, although they have their own challenges, and not everything is peace over there. But with CENCOM, it's like they're all the time within this fighting environment. and uh, Daesh, Iraq. Daesh, Iraq, countries, Yemen, uh, what happened? I mean, it's they are there all the time. So we feel kind of... We, we are really on the same sheet of music as, as the Americans like to, like to say, with Sencom. And, uh, and geography means also from the other perspective, which is strategic depth. And, uh, you know, for Israel, one of the main challenges really is that we don't really have strategic depth. I always, when I speak with my American friends, I always tell them that, you know, you can take Israel put it into Michigan Lake and it would sink. I mean, we are really, we are really small. The Ukrainian situation on this perspective is a bit uh, different. Uh, so yeah, geography matters. I would want to add something yeah, about CENTCOM, uh, the difference between new comments. Israel was an important, but ultimately marginal player in UCOM, which had Germany, Britain, France, the, Poland, the defense of Europe. In CENTCOM, it is the most powerful military partner the command has in its AOR. That makes a, a, a total difference in attitude. AOR, Area of Responsibility. Area of Responsibility. Acronyms. Yeah. Um, Although I, I must say that uh, all during the time with the UCOM, they would look at it exactly as CENCOM as they are looking at it. They didn't look at it as... A, Something you know on the side of what we are doing. They looked at in our own thing. neighborhood. Uh, we are not it's the bullies, but uh, we know yeah. how to take care of ourselves. <laughs> uh, but Danny, there is the uh, domestic political dimension to all of that. If, uh, especially in democracies, in parliamentary or congressional uh, democracies, um, the chief executive must go to uh, the Senate or Parliament with a formal treaty ask for um, approval. Uh, there is hardly um, any uh, enthusiasm and sometimes not even support for that because people understand that commitments mean that sometimes you have to act on them and send your boys to help some, as they say, godforsaken country. 
What's your experience in, in uh, Washington? Well, absolutely. Well, in Washington, we know that uh, actually I think the United States has probably, you know, in relatively, um, you know, relatively speaking, the most uh, powerful uh, legislator. You know, the, the, the House and the Senate together, um, they almost have equal power as the executive, as the president. You know it over budgets and also over decisions. You know, a war cannot be decided by the president without approval of the Senate. Same thing is with treaties. You know, if it is a formal treaty, it has to be done by Senate. This is why, for instance, the JCPOA or now... If the nuclear deal with Iran. With Iran. Or now if there will be a new kind of an agreement, the Americans will not want to make it as a formal treaty because they know it will not pass through the Senate. So, and, it, and this goes back to the League of Nations of 1919 where President Wilson right. wanted the United States right. to join. The Republican majority sure. in the Senate blocked it and the result was the failure of the League. Yes, this was a major embarrassment to uh, Wilson himself but also for the United States, absolutely. Uh, they regained prominence only after another war, Second World War. But in between the wars, they were almost a marginal power because of this decision by the by the parliament, by the, the American uh, uh, Congress. And, and here again, yes, here again, it is a matter of of the, the public, I would say, sentiment. And if you leave it to the public sentiment, which is not in the know, I mean, this is why there is a chain of command. And this is why we say that uh, maybe uh, the system of referendums is not the best system because, you know, uh, lay people, you know, and I don't blame them, may not know all the considerations. So this is another thing which I would not put my, my uh, let's say, my uh, fate into the general public or even into any legislator, legislative, including the American Congress. Iran, when, when you, um, your colleagues on the National Security Staff, when you have to consider um, this fact, which um, Danny just talked about, and you have to draft a memo to the cabinet, mm -hmm. reminding the ministers that political will can shift with the winds. Hmm. Up to a point. Each, uh, well, every four years, presidential elections, every two years, the House, yeah, well, every six years, the Senate. There was a Pakistani uh, writer who once said, working with the Americans is like having a village on the banks of the Indus River. You, you drink, you swim, you, you bring the cows to, do, to, to drink, and then there's a snowstorm somewhere and the river changes its course and, the, and the, the village ends up in the middle of a desert. So, yes, some things change very dramatically. Um, the, the position on Israel, until now, has shifted somewhat from administration to administration, but it is rooted in something very deep in the American identity. I wouldn't say this for the Ukraine, although there are plenty of American Ukrainians and the And by the way, the range of sympathy for Ukraine in the Congress is more or less similar to the range of sympathy to Israel, both sides of the aisle, moderate Republicans, moderate Democrats. Radical Democrats have criticized Biden's support for Ukraine. I don't know why they sympathize with a man like Putin, but basically they don't want America involved. And the hard right isolationists are also opposed. And they're gaining some also ground on the Republicans' uh, uh, assertion that the Ukrainians are Nazis. So, well, some on the left 
have picked up this nonsense. But uh, basically, the, the out of 435 in the House and 100 in the Senate, the great majority is pro-Ukrainian and pro-Israeli, and that's rooted in, in values, not just in interests. Daron, um, one of the reasons the Israeli model is so uh, uh, complex is that uh, according to um, foreign capitals, foreign experts, uh, just a couple of uh, days ago, the uh, distinguished uh, Swedish Institute, CIPRI, uh, reiterated once again the assertion, uh, even though they say that they have no proof, that Israel has, has 90 nuclear warheads. Uh, so Israel is regarded as a nuclear power. Uh, whether uh, it's true or not, of course, it's not, not for us uh, to say. But does that belief hamper uh, a foreign consideration of whether to offer a country guarantees when foreigners cannot really influence decision-making in a nuclear power's capital? Well, I think that uh, this should be something that to consider uh, even if you're not a nuclear uh, power because a decision could be made within a, a country. They are sovereign to make their own uh, decision and sometimes the decisions that may made that the, the new government or change of government could, could influence it. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that this is only it, but... Um, you know, and, and again, as you said, we, we cannot say yes yes or not, but uh, we can quote uh, um, President uh, Perez. Yeah, you, that by the way, would be the never, Israel you, would never you may be say it, but then we'll one. have to replace you and someone else will <laughs> exactly. be here next So time. we could quote uh, Shimon Peres, uh, that Israel would never be the, the, the first, first one to introduce, introduce weapons. We can quote Peres on every topic uh, on Earth. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, I think that uh, probably this would be a consideration, but not the only one and not only for countries, from my point of view, not only countries with weapons. No, we, we are unique in being... Uh, we are, but we are unique in everyone, you know. We yeah. like to be unique in everything that uh, we do. So to say the Israeli model, I think it's always challenging because our situation, it's really well, so but, unique. But as Shimon Peres yeah. could have said, better unique than eunuch. <laughs> I would like to get uh, like to exactly this line. And by the way, it starts with ego. That means our ego says, what? The Israeli model? No one is like us. Yeah. No one is friends <laughs> with Americans like us. I notice, by the way, when the Americans are here, Israeli leadership many times say, uh, we are your best uh, partners or something like that. And the Americans We, we have say, your back. Israel is our, is our valued partner in the Middle East, right? Are we more important than, uh, than England? Okay, anyway. No, they, no, would but say, they would say Israel has no better friend. No better yes, friend. But, they, but yes. they also say the United States and Israel with almost 350 million people together, <laughs> right. this, this is formidable. But, but seriously, to, to, to continue this and tie in other terms that we use like QME, qualitative military edge, I'm, I'm concerned because the Israeli model is not necessarily applicable to, applicable to Ukraine. It's, it's just not the same thing. It's in a way taking two different countries, different capabilities, different size, different scope, different interests and everything, and also being very different as an asset for the United States because we are an asset for the United States. That's one of the key reasons why they're with us. And then saying we're going to impose a model, right? And, this, and they, will, they will work here and they will work here. It doesn't work like that because Ukraine is not like us. Again, I don't want to boast, but for the United States, we are an asset for many uh, key issues like intelligence. That means our intelligence capabilities in the regions are such 
that we plug into the American system and nurture them with vital information. When they come and augment our capabilities in uh, missile defense, of course, together, it's an unprecedented umbrella. No such thing exists, and we have important assets there. And, of course, we gain great assets. So I'm, I'm concerned. And if you add to that that we have no promises, no guarantees, we have MOUs, okay? Israelis, we love these buzzwords. We have an MOU. What does MOU mean? Memorandum of Understanding. Where you, where you read. What does it say? We talked about it, and we see eye to eye. What does it mean? No, but then you go to MOA, Memorandum of, of Agreement. Agreement. Do we have an MOA with the United States? Do we have something that guarantees? So this model can't tell the Ukrainians, we'll impose this model and it will be okay. No, it won't be okay because you're not Israel. You don't have our capabilities even without the, augment, the augmentation of the Danny, let, let me ask you, because of your um, various perspectives, in the Prime Minister's office in Washington, then as a politician, a uh, member of Knesset and deputy foreign minister. The domestic foreign nexus. Um, this proposal, which uh, was voiced by Rasmussen and probably Macron, but also with the support of Andrei Yermak, Zelensky's advisor. Could it be an effort by Zelensky to try and get his own audience used to an idea, but better that it comes from the outside and he respond to it rather than a Ukrainian initiative. Absolutely. The, the, the nexus, as you say, between domestic and foreign, I think, is, is intertwined, is almost unbreakable, and it is used very much as a leverage. I'll give you one example. When I was in Washington, Bibi Netanyahu was then uh, Secretary of Finance or uh, Minister of Finance. He called me one day to tell me, you know, he was doing a reform and he, he said, he, he threatened that the reform, you know, um, if the reform doesn't pass, you know, of course, the unions and all the others were against, then the U.S. will deny $10 billion guarantees. He calls me to tell me, please verify, because after I say it, the, they will call you. Just tell them that it's true. So you see, absolutely. You sometimes, tell them that they will. Yes, yeah, sometimes okay. it's, it's they invite uh, a pressure in order to. I mean, this is an extreme case, but it goes all along. And Zelensky, I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. Iran. Well, I think the Ukrainian situation is unique also because uh, it's, it's, it has become a personal matter. Zelensky has been able to, well, he's an actor. And he's decided to play church. Literally an actor. He's literally an actor. Yeah. He, he actually, he, he used to play president in a comic series, and then it became reality. But perhaps tragedy now. <laughs> well, uh, and that famous, what was this tragedy may turn to be a farce. In this case, the farce became the, this time he decided to play church. And his impact with international opinion his impact with, with uh, parliaments and, and with, with publics has been remarkable. Um, up to a point, because a point. he has gotten a lot of aid, but not no, well, uh, there was it, uh, Putin troops made, to Putin, participate. Putin made it very clear on the 28th of February, uh, basically threatening, openly, brutally threatening Western Europe with annihilation if they crossed the threshold of direct military intervention. But anything up to that, and that, of course, will remain the case. This is why another one, another reason why there will not be a Chapter 5 
or uh, Article 5, sorry, uh, uh, commitment to, 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 to Ukraine, unless the dispute with Russia is settled once and for all and for all eternity. However, uh, short of that, Ukrainians got a fairly remarkable uh, package. Um, tens of billions of dollars in, in this, this is... And also, and also means. It's, it's more, actually, they got more in, in financial terms than the Russian defense budget. So, so that, that, and that all has to do with Zelensky's ability to cut a different figure than all previous uh, leaders of we, Ukraine we have came to, across as corrupt. Uh, we have to wrap up. Autocrats. Uh, a short question with short answers, uh, please. We are talking about the present. The fact that such a proposal uh, was raised means that after 16 months, everyone understands that such wars of attrition can go on and on unless and until a diplomatic formula is uh, breaking the logjam. How long can this war be sustained, Doron? Well, you know, we thought uh, after the first uh, three or one month uh, when we discussed it here, we thought that it won't be more than a few weeks. Uh, so um, it's it's a hard question, uh, but it's a hard question. I, I'll I'll let Danny answer it. Okay, a long time. I think but, it could go yeah, a long exactly. time. A long time. Could go a long time. A long well, time. What's a long time? Long Weeks, time months, years? No, years. Ruben, years, unfortunately, and sadly, and it will end with diplomacy, Only creative uh, solutions, Has to like any war. Yeah, yeah, an ugly compromise within a, a year or so. That is my guess. This has been Powers in Play. Thank you very much. Eran Lerman, Doron Gavish, Danny Ayalon, Ruven Ben Shalom. And we will be back with another edition of Powers in Play here on TV7 News Israel next month. For the time being, Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.